You know, it's probably ironic that I actually decided to go ahead and do a video about this game, because originally I wasn't going to, and then after some thought and having picked up the game and started replaying it, I decided to go and reconsider. This is going to be a kind of a strange rumination. This is probably going to be a little bit closer to an actual review than a rumination, but I want to keep the trend going of doing the whole series, and I do have a few things to talk about, so just kind of a heads up. We're going to go ahead and get the quote-unquote spoiler for the overall arc of Kingdom Hearts right off the bat. This is it. You ready? Oh my god, it's huge! <gasps> Sora and Riku have to go undertake the Mark of Mastery exam in order to become Keyblade Masters. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, in other words, it really doesn't have a particularly large connection to the overall story. In fact, if you ejected it, the main story would literally not be affected at all. However... I do still recommend you play it and pick it up, and I'm going to start talking about why in a minute, pretty much entirely in terms of gameplay. So let's go ahead and start there. I think it's a good place to start. First of all, one of the things I really like about the game, and I have to give props to it, is they took the original, Coded, and actually did something with it rather than just ported it straight to the DS. For those of you who are not aware, Coded was actually a phone game or a Flash game, I forget which, but either way it was a crap game, which virtually... Uh, was, was was virtually inaccessible to any of us in the West. And they decided to go ahead and put it on the DS in the form of Recoded, which is the video I'm actually talking the game I'm actually talking about here. Now Recoded actually took that and did quite a bit with it. Added a decent amount of additional cutscenes, made the gameplay a lot more tight. Uh it basically just polished it in every way. I'd almost call it an actual remake, except for the fact that it's more like a remake port, except it's kind of, it only came out like a year after the phone game. I don't know, it's weird, but nevertheless, they did a good job of it, so they deserve props for that. Now, the, I'm trying to think of where to even begin, because there's so much weird things to talk about. For example, I do recommend playing this game if you like Kingdom Hearts, uh, but see, the, the catch is, it's basically a game that's designed to be played and not viewed, if that makes any sense. There's some deeper thoughts about the story and implications, which I'll talk about in a minute. But what they do is, you know, you run around and you're you're doing the hack and slash standard Kingdom Hearts style thing, and everything's fine. And then without any real warning whatsoever, it kind of switches into side-scrolling platforming. I'm not actually kidding. You actually have a platformer section, pretty early on in the game, actually. And later on, you're, you're hack and slashing, doing your thing, and then you run into... A Star Fox section, or a Galaga section, would actually probably be a little more accurate. Really, I'm not kidding. And the, one of the last ones they introduced is actually a lot of fun. It's what I like to call the Mario RPG thing. For those of you who are not aware, in virtually every Mario RPG, the Mario and Luigi's and the Paper Mario's and the one on the SNES, uh, you know, it, it's turn-based combat, quote-unquote, but at the same time, you know, there's, like, reaction stuff. Like, if they hit, you can block right when they attack at the right time. When you attack, you can hit another button to do more damage, you know, that kind of a thing. It, it's that kind of a setup. Turn-based <laughs> combat in a Kingdom Hearts game. And yet, strangely enough, it works surprisingly well, which is the thing that really caught me. But the other thing that's kind of unique about it is the way they handle you actually... I'm going to put this in quotes. Level in this game, okay? The, the leveling system. Because the way it works is, if you've ever played FF10, you know what the sphere grid is, right? For those of you who don't, it, just bear with me. Now, imagine the sphere grid, except every stat sphere across the entire sphere is just empty. It's just a blank thing. And in order to progress, you have to fill them. Now, there's still the ability things here. But in other words, in order to get to that ability thing, you have to fill all these blank slots with 
uh, with, with stat ups. Now, in that the way this works is as you're playing the game, you get chips, okay, and you're trying to fill out a uh, motherboard for all intents and purposes. And so, you know, you start here, and there's like a line of chips going this way, and a line of chips going this way, and so you fill in the chips and go over here, and chung, and that each chip, you know, there's a strength up chip, an HP up, a defense up. You get the point. There's there's all sorts of stat changing chips that you get throughout the course of the game. Now, one there's there's a couple of things that actually make this surprisingly interesting and enjoyable as far as the leveling system. Number one, once you place a chip in a slot, that slot is forever going to have a chip in it. But you can always swap it out at will as long as you have another chip to do so with. Or in other words, if you push out to here, this chip, you know, if you use blank chips, for example, which I'll talk about in a moment, and get out to here, you can swap these out as soon as you get actual stat chips. You can never actually remove a chip, but you can always replace it. And that's true pretty much until the end of the game. The uh, Let's talk about the blank chips, too. You'll get a fairly decent amount of blank chips, or at least I did in my playthrough. And blank chips can be used just, just to fill out a spot in order to get to a thing, which may make you go, well, why would you even use that? Well, like I said, A, you can uh, do it to get abilities earlier. And I'll talk about why I use those on abilities in a moment. Uh, B, you, you can swap them out at will. And C, well, let's talk about the second thing, which is CPU overclocking. This is actually a really cool feature. As you progress through the game, you unlock CPUs. Each CPU has its own string of, uh, of chip lines, tiles, whatever you want to call it, attached to them, and they all connect in some way or another. So, for example, you've got this CPU here and this CPU here. If you actually connect these two, every single chip along the way between those CPUs then uh, counts as double. They overclock it, is what they call it. And every single one of those chips now does double its regular effect. Now, if you're paying attention... That sounds really cool, but see, the thing is, some people have, have asked me as I'm in the middle of explaining this, well, how do you level then? I mean, or rather, actually, the, the question is usually, are there levels? Well, the answer is yes, kinda. See, the way it works is you level up by getting level up chips, and you actually do gain experience from killing things which give you those chips. That's pretty much the only way to get level up chips. But the optimal strategy, at least early on for me, was to go ahead and make sure that every one of those chips in the line connecting between CPUs was a level chip so that I would just du basically double my level as soon as I actually connected the, the line. I say early on because later on it actually became more viable to go ahead and just max out one or two stats. Uh, strength would be a big one for me, for example, and make those on the, on, the, on the line, which is then doubled. Now, I mentioned the ability things and why I use blanks for that. Well, partially is because I tend to use my big things on the CPU lines. Anything in the ability line is almost never going to be doubled. Uh, when I say ability, it's not quite like FF10, you know, Null, Frost, or Quick Hit, or whatever. It's more like the things that you get in Kingdom Hearts 1 or Kingdom Hearts 2, you know, com uh, air combo plus, finisher damage increase, the ability to dodge and roll, you know, that kind of stuff, the ability to glide. All of those sorts of normal things that you would get in a game are the things that the, are the ability things. It's always off to the side, like this. There's a few other things you can get as well like that, like uh, the ability to equip more gear, that kind of a thing. But regardless... Usually I would use my blanks in order to fill out those and make sure I got those and you save all the stat things for the CPU lines. Now all of this makes for a really interesting uh, leveling experience where you have to actually think about it and there's a surprising amount of customization in how you approach it. Um, if you're trying to min-max it, of course, there's basically only one way to go, but that's if you're trying to min-max it. The... Uh, the other thing I'll think interesting, is interesting about this is the way they approach the equipment. And I gotta say that with kind of a question mark, because your weapon actually has virtually no impact on your stats. 
Rather, your weapon... God, it's really weird to explain. Basically, as you're fighting, as you're fi uh, hitting things, your combo rating goes up. And it can go up at, at several stages, right? Each time it goes up a stage, you get a new ability based on the weapon you have equipped. And there's actually a, a, a tree. You know, it's like, you know, when you get to stage 2, you get this ability. When you get to stage 3, you get this ability, etc., etc. And then when you finish out, it resets and goes back to here. Which can make for some very interesting choices as far as whether you want to combo up or not, and which weapons you end up equipping as a result of said comboing or not comboing. And of course, weapons can level up as well, which gives them more options on the tree. Near as I can tell, they either level up by just plain kills or hits. I'm not actually 100% sure. I never figured that out. Or bothered to, rather. And then, of course, you can equip accessories and the actual ability ability abilities you use. In other words, you know, fire or dash or that flinging thing. Strike raid, that's what it's called, strike raid. Those are kind of similar to Birth by Sleep, but there's a bit of a variance in the way they work because let's say I equip strike raid and blizzard. Uh, well, okay, I'm, I'm actually saying this wrong. When it starts out, you have a few slots to equip abilities. Now, the way this works is you basically have three slots, so you get three abilities, right? But each of these has two slots. So I could put Blizzard here, and Strike Raid here, and, I don't know, Ars Arcanum, which I somehow have, here. And therefore, you have those three abilities in combat. But you could also put Blizzard here and Strike Raid here, which will merge to make another ability. Now, you level those abilities by getting... Uh, I forget what it's called, but you get them very quickly. It's very quick to level up abilities. Once the two abilities are leveled, you can actually merge them, which will make a, which will make another copy of the combo ability you've already been using, but at a higher level, which means it will be doing more damage or more healing or whatever. Now, the other kind of weird thing about that is you do have a limit. You, you can basically only have use up 100% of your CPU at a time. It's literally a, a percentage. So every ability you equi equip takes up a bit of that percentage. And if you just keep comboing and comboing and, and uh, combining, excuse me, combining and combining and making them bigger and bigger and higher higher level, you're going to find out that you can only equip like five out of your eight abilities very quickly because they're so high level. Although that is what I did and it worked really well. Let me also say one other thing about this this game, now that we've talked about you know how it functions a little bit, that I really like, and that's the fact that it feels like an old Nintendo or Super Nintendo game. Let me back up and explain that a bit. One of the weird things is that this game really does genuinely believe in the old concept of trash boss mentality in terms of game design. For those of you who are not familiar with what I mean, the trash is trash. It's junk. You can two-shot virtually everything as long as you're keeping up with your stats. I was just blowing through trash like like you know a, a, a hurricane through Kleenex, <laughs> you know? And it was fun, too, because it was so quick and so high-paced I never got bored of it. And I, as long as I went ahead and used what I like to call the Korean method, or rather, my friend Gary calls it the Korean method, which is basically kill everything before you move on. Uh, I never was low on levels. I was never low on X, but I always got more stat ups and more chips and more level ups in order to keep, you know, keep that pace going. So the trash was actually trash. And at first I thought the game was going to be a little bit too pathetically easy. And then I fought my first boss, who was so on a different level of difficulty than all the trash. That it actually caught my caught me by surprise my very first time. I was like, okay, boss, whoa, die. Because I was just completely unprepared for it. The bosses are actually bosses. They do challenge you. They challenge your abilities. They challenge your knowledge of the game mechanics. They, you know, you do actually want to dodge, that kind of a thing. Now, it's actually not that hard. I would not call Recoded a challenging game at all. 
Rather, if I was to put this into such terms, I would say the bosses are about normal difficulty for most games and the trash is much easier. But I like that contrast because it makes it so that as you're playing through, you can play through kind of casually and normally and at a very high pace, which is good. It keeps the flow going. And then you get to a boss and it's like, okay, now you have to actually try. And then you actually try and you beat the boss and it's fun. And that's pretty much true for most of the game. In fact, pretty much all the game. Uh, several of the later bosses certainly got a little uh, interesting. And that's a kind of a Kingdom Hearts trend, isn't it? You get to that one boss, and that one boss is just... <laughs> but what I mean by my overall concept is that explaining Recoded is difficult for me to do from a dissection, from a, from a rumination perspective. Because it's like explaining Mystic Quest in its own way. Like I said, the game is just fun. You know, the leveling is interesting and, and, and intuitive and, and encourages you to experiment. The equipment is constantly changing and constantly moving thanks to the very nature of it, and therefore you're not actually penalized for using it improperly. But there are several reasons to go ahead and try and experiment with that as well. The actual combat is not only very, very fast and fluid and high-paced, but varies. If you were paying attention earlier, like I said, pretty early on, it's like, okay, Kingdom Hearts, you know, standard gameplay, standard gameplay, side-scrolling platforming. And my my reaction was not, huh? It was more like, yeah, this is awesome! And then when I hit the Mario Mario RPG section, I was just like, oh, this is so cool. You know, it was fun. One of their biggest tenets seemed to be to have fun. You know, like, uh, uh, like I said, a lot of the older games where they didn't really focus on things like story or plot or character development, it was just, let's make a fun game to play. Now, that being said... Do not mistake this for a game that has no story or plot. It's just that if you skipped it completely, you would probably enjoy the game basically as much. Now, I'm debating... Oh, let me let me check my notes. I haven't even checked my notes yet here. Let's see. Oh, right. There's one other note I want to make here before we actually get to the concept of story and whatnot. And that is the note of the Gaiden game. This is probably one of the best examples of a Gaiden game I've actually seen. For those of you not aware, a Gaiden game uh, can mean actually two different things, depending on its definition or usage. It can either mean a game that is using either the same setting, concept, styles, you know, something not literally connected to the main thing that is different. A good example of this, in theory, this is not a literally good example, but bear with me, would be uh, Final Fantasy Adventure, a.k.a. Uh, Sword of Mana which was a Gaiden game of the Final Fantasy series, using some concepts and precepts from the FF series to basically branch off and do its own thing and, and had no literal connection to the previous. Or a Gaiden game can be more like, say, uh, Crisis Core for, uh, for the PSP, where it's another game that's set within the same setting and possibly has connections to the... I mean, obviously Crisis Core has connection to the story, but the point is that connection to the story is not actually significant, or I should say required is probably a better way to put that. It's just set in the same setting, and therefore is another story within that same setting. It, to, to put this in different terms, even though these are not video games, uh, most of these Star Wars Extended Universe books could be considered guide games to Star Wars, if that makes sense. You know, more stories, more tales, more content set within the same general setting and with some of the same meaning, right? That's what Recoded is. Recoded is probably one of the best examples of a Gaiden game I've seen because you don't play Sora. Spoiler alert. <laughs> no, seriously, you don't play as Sora. You don't play as uh, anyone familiar, really, not counting the few sections with Mickey. You play as Data Sora in a Dataverse that, of a period of events that only happens after over like a couple of days that has virtually nothing to do with the main plot at all. 
It's basically another adventure set within the same setting, like I said, and its connections to the main story are tenuous at best. But that's not necessarily a bad thing, because they do some interesting things with it. One of the things I liked most is the fact that they use the Disney World specifically to, in what I like to call the holodeck manner. Um, in other words, the theory that if you were to make a holodeck recreation of whatever, um, I, I don't know, uh... Uh, Star Trek. <laughs> make a holodeck recreation of Star Trek and the holodeck. That makes a lot of sense. Whatever. Uh, make a holodeck recreation of Kingdom Hearts. Let's just do that. Or Aladdin. Here, let's just use the right thing. And so everything there is programmed to react as if they would, and with the knowledge that those characters should have, and then you introduce something that is alien and outside of that, and have them react to it in ways that make sense for their characters. For example, they don't just say, oh my god, we've got all these bugs and these things, and you need to debug the system and blah 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 because those things are alien concepts to these these characters and they are very definitely characters not actually people which is kind of the interesting concept there but they still react in a way that makes a degree of sense and each world tried to use not only that existing world disney and otherwise cuz hollow bastion was here as well but the method of its its execution was such that I, I never got disinterested or bored or whatever. It always felt like it flowed pretty naturally. Now, if you're paying attention, this is a compliment I've given to Kingdom Hearts several times, the idea that they actually used the Disney World well. Um, I, sh I, I hesitate to mention this, but it's almost it could be argued that I shouldn't be able to give that compliment each time because they should use the Disney World each well each time, or they shouldn't use them at all. But I nevertheless feel like pointing it out because, you know, it is it is well done. It is something that they did correctly, even though they should have done it correctly. So they, they still get credit for it, is what I'm trying to say here. Another thing, though, that they really... Well, I'm debating if I want to talk about that now or later. Hmm. Let's... Hmm. We'll go ahead and talk about one last thing before we hit the quote-unquote spoiler section. Um, one of the things that's interesting about this game is it brings up an issue that Kingdom Hearts 2 actually brought up, but Kingdom Hearts 2 kind of went out of its way to dismiss the issue almost intentionally, as quickly as possible. And that is the concept of artificial life. In Kingdom Hearts 2, we found out that within the Kingdom Hearts verse, it is possible to make what are, for all intents and purposes, holodeck holograms, just like in Star Trek. But what I mean by that is, is, is beings that have a great deal of similarity or appearance of sentience, but generally are just intelligent rather than sentient. Yet on several occasions, that is called into question. It is debatable as to whether or not Tron, for example, is actually sentient. It is debatable as to whether or not Datasora is sentient because of the way they act, because of the way they react. You know, that kind of a thing, right? It's very debatable, and I don't actually have an answer. I'm not going to place any judgment on this. But my point is, by simply bringing the issue up at all, that's what we call un un unhooking the uh, the serpent's nest right there, because artificial life is a very sticky topic and something that has to be dealt with with a degree of care and gravitas, basically. What we see in this is kind of a weird situation, because there are three data recreations within the story all of whom I would argue probably qualify as sentient or at least semi-sentient. And yet the rest go almost go out of their way to emphasize that they are not. And I, I hate to keep pulling the holodeck uh, similarity out here, but the reason I keep doing so is 
to put uh, quite a fine a point on it, I don't think that the Doctor from Voyager was actually sentient upon his activation. I think that he grew to become sentient over, you know, months and months and years and years of being activated and having the ability to learn and adapt and grow because he was designed to. That that's that's my opinion on the matter. I don't have a definitive, you know, comment on that, but you know, that that's how I perceive it. Now, that itself is kind of significant because that is a, almost exactly what happens here. All of the data recreations of the people from the Disney verses pretty much act just like you would expect a standard holodeck character to. In other words, they act and react, but there's no impetus. There's no self-awareness, self-impulse, uh, for lack of a better way to put it. They have no drive to do anything on their own. They're just a series of if-then statements, to put it in such terms. Now... Obviously, the line between that and sentience is incredibly blurred, and we don't even have an actual definition of sentience in real life, but you get I, I hope you at least understand where I'm going with this, because they feel much more flat compared to the other characters, but not in a bad way, in a way that the Doctor feels flat when compared to most holographic characters on Voyager, if you, if you see where I'm going with this. So Data Sora shows up, and he starts doing things, and early on he pretty much acts like any other hologram, any other uh, character within the story. But as the thing goes on, he starts to actually develop his own degree of personality based, of course, on the original Sora. And I, I feel like he, like the Doctor, reaches a point where he actually achieves a degree of sentience. Now, I mentioned there was two other characters that I feel actually probably qualify as, semi, as uh, sentient or semi-sentient. But I'll talk about those later because that's kind of in the spoiler section. The, the thing I wanted to mention here is the idea that Mickey and... <laughs> Ansem, the wise, so casually and so callously just went ahead and made holographic recreations, or whatever you want to call it, data recreations of a great many of people, and did so pretty much just on a whim and without question or hesitation for what he was doing. But it is worth noting that he was in a point in his life where he was not doing so well mentally, to put it nicely. I've already commented on my theories of him earlier. I don't want to retread that ground. But my point is that was at least understandable. Mickey, on the other hand, uses basically this exact same technology to do the exact same kind of thing, and yet he does it with absolutely no concept of the weight of what he is actually accomplishing, the weight of what he is doing. There are two huge issues to be attended here. One is that the creation of life, any life, is something that cannot be taken lightly. Forgive me for pointing this out, but going back to Star Trek, there's an episode in TNG whose name I don't remember, but it's when Data... Uh, builds his daughter, lol. And that episode, Picard has a wonderful scene with Data where he's, where he just, he, Picard has the genuine feeling and impetus and gravitas and significance. I don't know why I said impetus, that doesn't fit. The significance of the event of creating life and how it cannot be taken lightly, how it has to be something that you put a great deal of emphasis on. That's basically how I feel Mickey should be, except Mickey isn't. He just literally goes, yeah, let's go do this to figure out this problem. Woo! And that seems almost casually neglectful, and I feel like that might actually come up to be a plot point later on, based on the way things went. But the other side of this is the kind of terrifying idea that in the Kingdom Hearts verse, possibly everything is either is or can be digitized. Now let me explain, well, I'll explain what I mean by that in a bit. But that's a terrifying thought in its own way. Um, I think we'll go ahead and pause here to go ahead and say it is time for... Spoilers! So, now that we've given the warning, 
See, here's the thing. Mickey goes ahead and digitizes J Jiminy's journal in order to go ahead and, you know, start exploring it and try to figure out what the message is. Here's the catch. The journal already had a degree of self-awareness and the ability to edit itself. In Kingdom Hearts terms, I would say that the journal already had a heart, to put it into such words. And then he just went ahead and digitized it, which gave it the ability to have a manifestation within the, the datascape. Which is kind of terrifying when you think about it, because it's just a journal, it's just a book. Now, we do have some explanation of why this happened. It's because of the fact that Namine's abilities are so overwhelmingly uh, universe-altering, to put it in such terms, that all memories, all written work, all everything that was attached to Sora in his time was rewritten, broken, etc., as a result of the events of uh, Chain of Memories. So that explains it a little bit, but I'd like to stress again that this is a book which was written with pen and paper, which grew its own degree of sentience, or heart, or whatever you want to call it, before it was digitized. And that's kind of the important part. Before it was digitized. And there's an echo of Namine within that book, oh, spoiler alert, <laughs> that is actually one of the other semi-sentient creatures I was going to mention. It's it's pretty much the absolute last thing you find out as you, as you learn the, the hist what's going on with Namine, well, excuse me, Data Namine. And, yeah, that's just kind of horrifying from an implications perspective, isn't it? Now, granted, Disney in general has always kind of taken that viewpoint. I mean, how many inanimate objects or animals just walk around talking as if it's totally normal to do so, when the implications of that are actually really terrifying when you actually think about it? But, so, maybe that's just kind of the general gist they were going with. It's just something to think about. But there's one other thing to think about. I mentioned three characters. Uh, Data Sora, Data Riku, and Data Namine are the three semi-sentient or semi-sentients. But Data Riku isn't actually... Well, Data Riku is basically the journal. Data Riku is actually the heart, soul, sentience, intelligence, whatever you want to call it, of the journal itself. And... It makes a degree of sense that he would become sentient thanks to the way the journal was, was functioning and working. So I'm totally okay with that. But... <laughs> well, let's just say that when Data Roxas showed up, that was interesting. But uh, before I get into that, I want to talk about one last thing here. And that's the idea of whether or not... Whether or not any of the sentiences were allowed to continue after this. We have no idea what happened with Data Sora, or Data Namine, or Data Roxas. All of these, their stories have basically ended and we have no idea what they resulted. It's very likely that Data Riku, aka the journal, continued on because the journal itself continued on. So that makes sense. But we have no idea what happened to these other lives and if they're going to be allowed to continue or not. Now, it would be very easy to do so, but it's something that the characters themselves never bring up, which is why I mention it. Because that was one of the things I was thinking. I mean, oh my god. What are you going to do with this, Mickey, now that you've basically created life? <laughs> like I said. Alright, so, let's talk about the Oblivion Castle section, which is probably the absolute best section of the game for me, because it really, really, really digs deep into a few ideas that Kingdom Hearts has always kind of uh, approached, but I, I just still uh, like their idea for it, because there's two major themes throughout the Oblivion Castle. One of it is 
the old, uh, do our memories make us who we are or do we make us who we are? In other words, are we innately a person or does our upbringing? It's kind of a nurture versus nature argument to, to boil it down to its simplest point. In other words, data Sora, and this is, the, the way they approach it, the way they execute it is basically flawless. It is almost horrifying in its quiet terror because as data Sora is going through cast the, the data castle oblivion, his memories are being wiped completely regularly and then they're being rebuilt from things that happened as though they were happening even though they clearly aren't and then they're wiped again to explain what i mean for those of you who are not aware or don't actually plan to play this game you go into a data recreation of you know the the aladdin town that you've just gone through and it's basically all the events that had happened in the aladdin area in the game right Except it's not. It's just a room. It's just a r empty a Castle Oblivion room with the characters there. But everyone acts as though they're actually at Agrabah, including Data Sora himself. And so everyone's reacting and interacting as though this was actually going on. And it gets that kind of, you know, pseudo-creepy, something's-not-quite-right-here vibe because of the fact that it's so obviously not what's happening and that everyone's acting as though it is... And then the moment it's over, the, and I do mean the second it's over, his memories are wiped again and he has no idea what he was doing or talking about it. He just moves on as if nothing changed. Which, again, is kind of quietly terrifying. Now, I mentioned the nurture versus nature thing. It's interesting to note that as Sora's memories, data Sora's memories, are being slotted in and out, like, I don't even know what, nickels at a slot machine, he nevertheless maintains a core of who and what he is, which, of course, makes sense in the Kingdom Hearts verse, because the Kingdom Hearts verse talks a lot about the idea that uh, nature is more important than nurture. In other words, your heart and who you are don't really change. It is, uh, the, you know, you, you can mold and alter and, you know, work, but the point is, you are always going to be you, which, you know, I'm with that. But one of the things, the other major theme that they really explore in the Castle Oblivion section is the idea that... Life sucks. That things in life cause pain. And in order to actually deal with that pain, you only have two options. You can live with the pain and try to work through it and get full, and you'll go on with your life. Or you can give up completely in whatever format that takes. As we're going through there, Data Roxas is almost constantly lying to Data Sora, telling him about his heart is going to be consumed by darkness, how he's going to take him back, how he's, his pain and all the hurt that he's gone through is going to make him feel horrible, and blah, 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 blah. And Data Sora basically con uh, accepts and admits this, but he decides he'll keep going rather than retreat, which is his only other option, because he wants to figure out what the hell's going on. He wants to know why he feels this horrible ache deep within him. Because Data Sora is a recreation of Sora, of course, which has obvious connections to the incredibly horrifying tragedy that is not only uh, 358, but Birth by Sleep. Because remember, he has both Ventus's and Roxas's and technically Shion's heart, or at least fragments of them within him. All of which went through some pretty horrifying events. You want to talk about pain? So it reaches the point where he finally decides, I will go ahead and use this pain as a way to keep going. And the Data Roxas says, no, I will show you what pain really is. And that's when that awesome boss battle happens, where he was really hard. Probably the hardest fight in the game, I think. It was a lot of fun. And then you get past that section, he's like, okay, I suppose you're, you're at least worthy enough, strong enough to go ahead and try and face your pain. Which is good, because the pain's only getting worse from here on in. And then he fades completely, and that's when we meet Data Namine the actual source and cause of all the events of this game. 
Data nominee is probably best to describe as an echo of the actual nominee. One of the only echoes left, because at this point in time, don't forget, nominee has basically resubmerged into uh, Kyrie. Although we don't fully know exactly how much of her is still left in there. We, well, there's hints that there's some, but I guess we'll find that out in Kingdom Hearts 3. And one of the most terrifying things about that is nominee, when she was in, data nominee, excuse me, when she's in there, she can finally explain a few things that hasn't been explained to the characters yet that we, the, the, you know, the out of person, the gamers, the players actually already know a lot of the connections between Sora and Aqua, Ventus, and Terra, the the thing that happened with Shion, you know, all these things that the characters are unaware of because of either time or circumstance or memory being erased, that characters, well, I should say Data, Sora, and as a result, Mickey, are now made aware of. That's probably the biggest significant point here. This is the moment when the characters within game finally start to realize what we, the players, have known for a little bit of time now. We also find out that... Uh, Xehanort is going to be reconstituting because of the method by which his Heartless and his Nobody were both destroyed. Which by itself is interesting, but it also means that anyone who is destroyed in that manner might also reconstitute, which has its own significance, which I'll be talking about when we get to Dream Drop Distance. But the final thing I want to talk about, and yeah, I'm basically out of things to talk about. I told you it'd be a short one. Uh, the final thing I want to talk about is the fact that the last scene between Data Sora and Data Nominee was actually kind of sad, you know? I'm one of those people who's been bothered for a while about the fact that, or had been, I should say, bothered for a while by the fact that they never actually got to thank Nominee. That was like the message that was in the They even mentioned it in Kingdom Hearts 2. Thank Nominee. Who's Nominee? To be forgotten is worse to, you know... <laughs> To be forgotten is worse than to be dead, I believe, is the quote from FF9, paraphrased. Um, the idea that Namine went through so much and suffered so much and then worked so hard to make sure that Sora was rebuilt, and then he has no idea. Not, they have no idea that any happened. But Data Sora, and this is so sad because Namine is basically gone at this point, and Sora's off doing his own thing. So it takes Data Sora to finally, finally, finally deliver the message to Data Namine, a.k.a. Namine, of thank you, finally getting to say thank Namine because of all that she did and worked on. And after she does her big expedition, the two have this really touching scene as they're just... <laughs> they're both data constructs based on the original beings, and they both know that. But as is pointed out, at the very least, the message was finally sent. And that just kind of got to me. And then the very last cutscene is, is we actually get to hear what Mickey mentioned in his letter to uh, Kairi, Sora, and Riku. Which, of course, leads directly into the events of Dream Drop Distance, which I will start playing soon. No, I haven't actually started playing it yet. I, uh, I The marathon kind of killed me as far as, it, uh, you know, getting up the thing. But I'm working on it, I swear. As soon as I get a few more Oblivion and Star Trek videos loaded, I'm going to go ahead and start playing it, and I'll get ready for that. So, hope you enjoyed. I'll see you on the next side.